My name is Adrian Muir-Smith. And for over 15 years, I was a criminal defence lawyer and represented thousands of individuals, many having committed the ultimate crime, murder. I gained a rare insight into the criminal mind and still was often horrified witnessing the cruelty of men. However, the nature of these more recent crimes pale in comparison to the dark deeds occurring over the centuries in Scotland's capital city. Edinburgh is truly one of the greatest cities in the world, and whilst its castles, streets and characters may seem familiar to you, there is a darker side to its history that until now has been hidden from view. I have uncovered the murky past of Edinburgh's Royal Mile, and the stories I will share with you in this series of podcasts are no ordinary crimes, murders by lords and kings, the riotous Edinburgh mob, murders by so-called resurrectionists and men so dangerous they were transported to our furthest penal colonies. For the first time I will reveal Edinburgh's criminal past and its blood which stains the very cobbles under our feet. These are gruesome tales motivated by ambition, greed and betrayal. All of this cruel violence played out in one of the world's greatest thoroughfares, the Royal Mile of Murder. At the public execution of the smuggler Andrew Wilson, thousands of onlookers rioted and threw stones at the city guard. The city guard responded by firing into the crowd, and as a result, six were killed and many others injured. Captain Porteous, the unpopular captain in charge of the city guard, was later convicted of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. This may have satisfied the Edinburgh mob, but was viewed with dismay by many of Edinburgh's leading citizens. The evidence in his trial had been contradictory and confusing, and some believed that even if the verdict was correct, the sentence was excessive for a man who was merely doing his duty. A petition was delivered to the Queen Regent asking for a reprieve, and a sentence of hanging was postponed. Friends of Andrew Wilson and many of the Edinburgh mob were annoyed by the Queen Regent's reprieve, and a plot was hatched to overwhelm the guards at the Tollbooth prison and then to capture and kill Captain Porteous. The Lord Provost ignored rumours and direct warnings about this plot, and as the rioters broke into the Tollbooth jail and captured Captain Porteous, the Lord Provost, slow and indecisive, failed to take steps to protect his captain from the mob. A letter written by an eyewitness describes what happened once Captain Porteous was captured. The letter reads as follows. He begged for mercy, but alas, the mercies of a mob, like those of churchmen, are barbarities and cruelties, for as they carried him to the grass market, they ran torches in his face which they had with them, though the moon made it as light as day, and beat and punched him most unmercifully. Extreme calls for violence erupted from some of the more bloodthirsty members of the mob. There were cries to cut off Captain Portis's ears, or even to geld him, and as the rioters carried him to the grass market, they entered a shop in the West Bow, number 69. 
The shop belonged to Mrs Jeffrey, who was known to sell household goods, including coils of rope. When the rioters asked for a coil of rope, the woman asked if it was to hang Porteous with, and on being answered with a hearty affirmative, she cried that she would willingly give all the ropes in her shop for so good a purpose. But nonetheless, they laid a guinea upon the counter to pay for the rope she handed to them. Once the rioters arrived in the grass market with Captain Porteous, the horrific incident escalated. The monsters threw the rope over a dyer's tree which happened to be close by and is in the form of a gallows, about 15 foot high, on which they dry their worsteds and cloths and immediately hauled him up. After he had hung about three minutes, the barbarians let him down quite alive and stripped off his nightgown and shirt, which last they tied about his head but not his face, and then, with huzzas, pulled him up again. But as his hands were not bound, he struggled, poor creature, very much, upon which one of the villains, armed with a locaber axe, broke his right arm and shoulder, and then they kept jerking him up and down for about an hour. When they were sure he was dead, they wound the rope, as it was very long, about one of the supports of the gallows, and nailing the end of it with several great nails, left him hanging till five in the morning. The entire incident was witnessed by John Nisbet. He gave the following description. One of the mob brought a coil of ropes. The rioters threw one end over the dicester's tree, which a party of them on the east of the said tree laid hold of in order to be ready to pull him up, while another party to the west of the tree about ten yards endeavoured to tie the other end of the rope about his neck. And in the struggle he was brought down to the street and laid upon his back, and they, having there fixed the rope about his neck, dragged him thereafter towards the foot of the tree. And then the other party drew him up, and then one of them that pulled him up, being a thin man, well set in his joints and tall, with a blue coat, a lighter coloured waistcoat, a black roller about his neck, a hat and a dark coloured periwig, took hold of a lacabar axe and gave the deceased Captain Porteous two strokes with it. This man was never identified. Captain Porteous had been tortured and mutilated. The Edinburgh mob wanted their revenge on the man they regarded as their greatest tormentor, and now they had it. The leaving of the guinea on the counter to pay for the merchandise demonstrates the discipline of the mob. They clearly saw themselves as instruments of justice, and that in their own perverse way wanted to operate within the confines of the law. As the rioters started to pour out of the town and into the country, Captain Lind and others carefully made their way to the grass market, and there they found Captain Porteous still hanging by the neck. The body of Porteous, his neck broken, his arm wounded, and his back and head bruised, was removed and the next day buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard, where it can be visited today. Originally, the grave was commemorated only by a wooden post bearing the number 32. However, a small gravestone was erected around 45 years ago with the inscription, John Porteous, Captain of the Edinburgh City Guard, murdered 7th September 1736. Greyfriars Kirkyard is located at the southern edge of the old town, only a few minutes' walk from the very location of Captain Porch's public torture and execution. The precise location of his murder is identified by a plaque positioned high up in the wall, just inside the entrance to Hunter's Close in the Grass Market. 
the plaque was erected by the Porteous Associates and reads as follows. At this place, on the night of September 7th, 1736, Captain Jock Porteous of the Edinburgh City Guard was brutally lynched from a dyer's pole by an Edinburgh mob. The riot, capture and murder of Captain Porteous was a shocking crime. The author, William Rockheed, describes the aftermath of the riot as follows. The mob melted away as swiftly and mysteriously as it arose. Up in the lawn market, the scorched and blackened gateway gaped from the empty prison. Scattered arms and smouldering torches lay thick about the Beaufort well. Beneath the grim shadow of the dyer's tree, the silent figure swayed lonely in the moonlight. Save for these traces of its passing, the riot of the night seemed but an ugly and fantastic dream. This may have been the end of Captain Porteous, but the government could not allow the matter to rest here. This murder was an insult to Queen Caroline and a full parliamentary inquiry would follow. The government declared that the Lord Provost and others who had failed in their duty would be held to account, and those involved would face a trial for the brutal murder of Captain Porteous. The riot was seen as an affront to both royalty and the government, and action had to be taken to bring the perpetrators to justice. The failure of the Lord Provost, magistrates and other officials to protect Captain Porteous while in custody was seen by the government as a dereliction of duty and furthermore an insult to the Queen Regent who had granted the reprieve. On 25th of September, a proclamation by the Queen was published offering a pardon to any of the rioters who should discover or apprehend other rioters and a reward of £200 for every person who was convicted. However, those that knew of the murderer's identity kept the information to themselves and there was not one person in Scotland who broke ranks to earn the £200 reward. It was clear that the government were intent on finding and prosecuting the ringleaders. The Lord Advocate and the Solicitor General, the very men who had successfully prosecuted Captain Porteous, were told to undertake an urgent inquiry, to identify and bring the perpetrators to justice. Identifying the rioters should have been a simple matter. On the evening of Captain Porteous's murder, it was said by witnesses that It was so clear in moonlight that the face of any person could be known from one side of the street to the other. And in the grass market, where the murder was committed, the scene was brilliantly lit by the torches of the conspirators. But who were these conspirators? This was more than a spontaneous event carried out by an Edinburgh mob intent on vengeance. The Caledonian Mercury, the leading newspaper of the time, described the incident as follows. Neither the gentlemen who conversed with the rioters at the Tollbooth, nor those who were sent to see if they knew any of the rioters, could say they had ever seen any of them before, though the flames rendered it as light as at noon. So it is generally believed no Edinburgh citizens took any principal part in this tragedy. General Wade gave a speech in the House of Commons and described the Porteous riots as follows. If we take a view of the whole proceedings in that barbarous murder, we find nothing in it that looks like the precipitate measures of a giddy mob. No, they went coolly and regularly to work, and for my part, I have never been witness to, nor ever heard of, any military strategy 
better laid down or more resolutely executed than this murderous plan. At the start of the investigation, a number of eyewitnesses were interviewed. A witness who lived in Edinburgh called Buchanan said that he was within sight of the prison door, all the while the mob were breaking and burning it, that he looked on many of their faces, but knew none of them, that they were all dressed like tradesmen's servants, but in his opinion, by the linen and the colour of their hands, some of them seemed to be persons of a higher status. As the investigation continued, the Earl of Isla, the Lord Justice Clark, wrote to the Duke of Newcastle and reported that This outrage was committed not by an ordinary sort of mob guided by sudden rage, but by a well-contrived scheme, executed by a cool, resolute gang, taking authority over the mob and restraining them from every folly but the wickedness they had determined to perpetrate. There is great reason to believe that some of that abandoned gang of smugglers had a chief hand in all of this. Initially, it seemed that this investigation was going nowhere, but the investigators needed to find a culprit quickly and satisfy the government's demand for justice. The Lord Justice General signed warrants to arrest seven suspects and the Lord Justice Clark signed three more. The initial suspects were shopkeepers and servants, but eventually they identified one person of interest, William McLaughlin, the Countess of Weems Footman. The evidence against him was poor, but nonetheless he was arrested and kept in the toll booth. The Lord Justice General was fully aware of the challenges he would face in securing a conviction, and in writings to the government in England he stated that The secret patrons of the mob seem to be busy in preparing false evidence to acquit the criminals, and those suspects that are arrested and in prison already have in their mouths the names of persons who they say will swear to their innocence. Their accomplices in the murder will easily perjure themselves to save their friends. Eventually, after weeks of investigation, the key suspect was brought to trial. William McLaughlin appeared in the High Court of Justiciary, charged as being accessory to the murder of Captain Porteous. His trial started in March 1737. William McLaughlin was easily identified, as at the time of the riots he was wearing the uniform of Lady Weems' livery. He was seen with a lacabar axe in his hand, given to him by one of the conspirators. However, there was no evidence that he committed any offence, and it seemed he used the lacabar axe merely as physical support. He was unable either to stand alone or speak. It would seem that William McLaughlin was vastly drunk during the whole time of the riot. His trial started at seven in the morning, and after all the witnesses had testified, the jury retired at eight in the evening to consider the evidence. On the following day, by unanimous verdict, William McLaughlin was found not guilty. A second man, Thomas Linnan, who had left the city in 1736, returned two years later and presented himself to the Lord Justice Clark. His trial took place in June 1738, and although he was identified by witnesses as being seen with the mob, they commented that he was not wielding any weapons. He was found not guilty, and this was the last attempt to bring to justice 
anyone suspected of Captain Porteous's murder. The author, William Rockheed, commented upon these acquittals. It is hard to believe that the Crown Council expected to secure a conviction. The probability is that someone had to be tried in order to appease, if possible, the royal wrath, and the unlucky footman was selected as a scapegoat. The verdict inflamed the anger of the English nobles. In a speech to the House of Lords, Lord Carteret spoke strongly in favour of a public inquiry being made into the circumstances of the Porteous riots in Edinburgh. He said that, The murderers of Captain Porteous must be well known to the magistrates and citizens, the former having encouraged the riot, and some of the latter being involved, and if they conceal their names, the city should be punished. As the investigation into the murder of Captain Porteous was underway in Edinburgh, and a few weeks before the trial of William McLaughlin, the Lord Provost and others had been summoned to England and commanded to appear in the House of Lords to justify their inaction. The Lord Provost tried his best to excuse himself and the magistrates of any negligence, and in his statement to the Duke of Newcastle he said, This abomination both astonished and greatly afflicted me and the other magistrates. I take the liberty to assure your grace that as far as the surprise and the uncommon circumstances that attended it did allow, the magistrates did exert themselves to quell the mob and to prevent the mysterious consequences that ensured. But it was got to be so great a height before we had any notice of it that our endeavours were in vain. However, General Moyle related an altogether different story to the Duke, stating, It was not by any neglect of mine the poor man lost his life. Had the Lord Provost given me his early notice as he got himself, from a relation of his own, I could with ease have prevented what happened, without the effusion of blood. But it was a concerted affair that the poor man should die, to prevent the resentment of the mob falling on a certain person. The certain person was the Lord Provost of Edinburgh. The Lord Provost's account and lame excuses were regarded as particularly unimpressive, and as the inquiry was underway, the House of Lords heard about William McLaughlin's unanimous not guilty verdict, and this did not help the Lord Provost. His testimony was seen as unreliable, and his position untenable. He was taken into the custody of the gentleman usher of the Black Rod. The Black Rod is a senior officer in the House of Lords, and one of his duties is maintaining order. Adding further fuel to the fire, a formal bill proposing a new law was presented to Parliament. The principal purpose of this particular bill was to imprison the Lord Provost, barring him from holding any official positions anywhere in the UK, and to abolish the City Guard. The Lord Provost was eventually released after three weeks in custody, and publicly declared that he and his fellow magistrates would oppose the passing of the bill. They presented a petition to the House of Lords, stating their objections, and asked for an advocate to be allowed to argue the case on their behalf. The wording of the bill was hotly debated in the House of Commons, and after weeks of discussion, was changed beyond recognition. The Lord Provost would not be imprisoned, and the City Guard would not be abolished. One casualty of the inquiry was Captain Lind. Upon his return to Edinburgh, he was removed from his post by the city magistrates. 
Perhaps he lost his job as a result of his clear recollection of events, and because his version of the facts did not cast the Lord Provost and the city magistrates in the best possible light. As compensation, the British government quickly appointed him as lieutenant in a regiment of the South British Fusiliers in Gibraltar. A punishment was imposed upon the city of Edinburgh. They had to pay a fine of £2,000, which was for the sole use and benefit of Captain Porteous's widow. The city had originally offered her only £10 a year as an annual pension and had increased this to £12 a year when she thanked and exonerated all magistrates from any responsibility in connection with her husband's murder. As the government mithered over the failure to fully punish the Lord Provost, the Scots rejoiced when he returned triumphantly to Edinburgh. Thousands gathered in the streets to welcome him. Music was played, great bells rang for hours, and at night the city was illuminated by two huge bonfires. As the Lord Provost and the city recovered from its celebrations, the friends and family of Captain Porteous realised they would never see justice. But the important question is, if William McLaughlin had no involvement in the murder of Captain Porteous, who were the perpetrators? The content of memoirs written over a hundred years later provides some insight. A resident of Anstruther, a Mrs Black spoke about one Bruce, a wild Anster youth, who procured, by rather unjustifiable means, the rope for which a guinea was left in exchange, and with which rope they proceeded forthwith to hang the wretched, bullying, wife-beating Jock Porteous. Mrs Black's story went on to tell that Bruce, the Westport rioter, afterwards, when things had blown over, returned to Anstruther and resumed his peaceful occupation as a shaver and wig dresser. Having examined the court records, and other historical documents, I believe that Sir Walter Scott may have solved the issue when he spoke of Twelve young men belonging to Wilson's native village of Pathhead, who were determined that Porteous, despite his reprieve, should not escape his lawful doom. They crossed the forth at different ferries and assembled in the Portsborough the day before the riots commenced. They supplied the spark and this was all that was required to ignite the riot. Wilson's gang of friends from Pathhead, not wanting to be denied justice, and with the willing support of the Edinburgh mob, outwitted the Lord Provost and the city guard. They treated Captain Porteous with the greatest viciousness. They brutally assaulted and killed him. Despite ongoing inquiries and proclamations being read in church, no one was ever convicted of this killing. Although the soldiers and the city guard had fired their weapons, killing and injuring many people, there was no popular outcry against the soldiers themselves, nor any demand they should be brought to trial. On the other hand, the British government continued to believe that Jacobites, Covenanters, or fanatical clergymen were in fact the planners and instigators of the riot. The magistrates ordered a hundred men armed with firelocks and bayonets to stand guard around the city. They dismissed as incompetent all soldiers in the city guard and ordered a new door for the tollbooth now on display at Abbotsford House near Melrose in the Scottish Borders. In August 1737, the Town Council, somewhat belatedly, took action to prevent any further rioting at public executions 
and passed an act stating, The person or persons who shall hereafter be found guilty or art and part of throwing stones, mud, dung and other garbage at the officers of the law, city guard or common executioner shall be whipped through the city by the hand of the common hangman and thereafter imprisoned for the space of one year. The behaviour of the Edinburgh mob during the riot and the failure of the Lord Provost and the city magistrates to protect Captain Porteous and ensure that justice was eventually served continues to leave one of the greatest stains on the character of Edinburgh and its citizens. As General Moyle had observed, this was the third time in living memory that a prisoner had been freed by rioters from the jail with the purpose of murdering them. It seems that neither the streets nor the jails of Edinburgh were safe from the supremacy of the mob. Please stay with me, Adrian Muir-Smith, as we continue in a podcast journey through the gruesome history of Edinburgh's Royal Mile. As we move from one bloodbath to another, you will hear about judicial murders in Edinburgh Castle, killings by so-called resurrectionists, and intrigue and murder in the Royal Court of Mary Queen of Scots. All of this cruel violence plays out in one of the world's greatest thoroughfares, the Royal Mile of Murder. This series of podcasts has been possible due to the support of so many individuals. Thanks to Arlene Anderson, Ronnie Renucci QC, Andy Houston, Jeremy Fraser, David Campbell, Colin Mackay, Colin Henderson and Russell Lockland for contributing their voices to these tales. A huge thanks to Kirsty Archer-Thompson and Steve Penman who spent many hours reviewing the scripts and providing advice and support. And of course to the young and very talented musicians Nick Launer, Neve McIlvenny, Abigail Young, Joanna Dodds and Anne McClucky. And then a special large thanks to Jack McClucky who wrote the music score and performed the violin, acoustic guitar, mandolin, banjo and vocals, as well as production and editing of The Black Dinner. And finally, to Martin and Jason Rennie for their outstanding editing and production of The Porch's Riots. To all listeners, please subscribe to these podcasts and be the first to enjoy new episodes as they are published. <laughs>